I have had supervisors call me to ask me what the optimal target mm-hmm. language usage is for instructors. Yeah. Because they're using that as a metric sure. to evaluate yeah. their instructors. Yeah. 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 And I feel really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I, and, and I can't provide a number because we don't know the number. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? So I feel really uncomfortable about that. And teachers, I've seen a lot of trauma in teachers around this issue. You're listening to Speaking of Language, a podcast recorded at the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. Each week, we explore a topic related to language pedagogy and second language acquisition. This week on Speaking of Language. Amanda Brown lets us in on the sometimes surprising results of her research into immersive and non-immersive language teaching. Welcome to a new episode of Speaking of Language. I'm Angelica Kramer, the director of the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. My co-host Sam, the LRC's media development manager, is stuck in a snowstorm, so he'll be back for next week's episode. I'm delighted to welcome Amanda Brown to the studio today. Dr. Brown is Associate Professor of Linguistics at Syracuse University. She is on campus as part of our monthly LRC speaker series and gave a talk titled Immersive versus Non-Immersive Language Teaching, Experimental Studies in English, French, and Arabic Classrooms. We will extend our conversation about the implications of her research for classroom language immersion on our podcast. Welcome to Speaking of Language, Amanda. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. And we are very delighted to have you here. So before we dive into our topic, can you tell us a little bit more about your background, your research, and your path with languages? Mm. So I think I'll start with my path with languages because that's probably the one with the least information in it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So being a a researcher in second language acquisition, um, people often ask me, oh, that's so wonderful. How many languages do you speak? And my canned answer to that is, well, I don't really speak anything other than English, but because of my research, I understand why I can't. (laughs) So so my field is, uh, obviously, we study, you know, um, people who have successfully acquired second languages, but there are lots of factors that go into that. So so that's uh, what I happily use as an excuse. Um, <laughs> nice. But I spent, uh, I had a career as, a, as an English language teacher in um, Japan and China and the Netherlands and the UK oh, wow. and the US. Um, and especially that experience abroad um, really led me to my interest in cross-linguistic mm. influences. Mm-hmm. Nice. So my main research program, um, sort of basic scientific research, is uh, bi-directional, about bi-directional cross-linguistic influence. And really the main part of that is looking at how the second language, learning a second language affects your first language. Mm. Yeah. So I had had experiences coming back from mm. my um, time in Japan, returning to my home country, where I observed that my first language English had been affected oh, yeah. by those experiences. Yeah. And that was really interesting. So my research has gone into that area, looking at the effects of learning a second language mm-hmm. on your first language in speech and gesture. Hmm. And the work that I presented is a really applied extension of that. Okay. So I had looked at um, how bi-directional cross-linguistic influences um, can impact second language assessment. Mm -hmm. And then in this newer line of work, it's um, taking that to the language classroom 
And so looking at um, multilingual approaches to second language learning. Mm -hmm. So that's when that's where we are now. <laughs> <laughs> but I still have I'm still interested um, in the the basic scientific research program as well. Sure. Nice. So in your talk on immersive versus non-immersive language teaching, you mentioned multi-competence and mm -hmm. translanguaging, mm -hmm. and that the goal of world language teaching and learning should be the development of really bi- or multilingual speakers um, who are proficient and flexible in the use of multiple languages. Mm -hmm. How can we achieve that? Yeah, that's the million-dollar question. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this line of research is uh, kind of promoting the idea that one way we might think about this is by not banning languages in our target language classroom. So mm -hmm. say we're learning Japanese. Yeah. Um, and conventional wisdom, mainstream language teaching emphasizes the... Um, input that learners receive the, and the interactions they're able to engage in and the output they can produce with a focus, of course, understandably, on the target language input, output and interaction. Um, but in that enterprise, quite a lot of people have written now about um, the problems of trying to ban the first language mm, in the second yeah. language classroom. So, If we're trying to develop multilingualism, the idea of translanguaging is to recruit the full lexic the full linguistic repertoire of one's language knowledge for mm -hmm. to in in the service of one's communicative goals. Um, and so the line of research that I'm currently engaged in then will take teachers' professional judgments and students' sense of agency mm -hmm. in language choices to recruit their full linguistic repertoire in the classroom. Hmm. So that means they may mm -hmm. not be engaging in target language production sure. the whole time. Yep. They may be using their first language or other languages mm -hmm. that they know mm -hmm. um, in addition to the target language and their first language. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, in your talk, you provided some information about some of these experimental studies mm -hmm. that you have conducted in English, French and Arabic classrooms. Mm -hmm. Were there any differences between these three languages that you that you uncovered? The most surprising thing was the lack of differences huh, <laughs> across okay. the studies, which okay. was really unexpected. So we did look at a total of 12 classrooms. Um, four of them were French and Arabic classrooms, so two in French and two in Arabic, and the remainder were English uh, classrooms. And so you're looking at foreign language and second language mm -hmm. classrooms, You're looking at different levels of proficiency. You're looking at different teachers, different mm -hmm. students. Sure. Um, but primarily the same kind of quasi-experimental methodology used across the studies. And with, with regards to the learning outcomes, um, as measured by quizzes and kind of fairly standard mm -hmm. um, course assignments there didn't seem to be a difference in whether the teacher was trying to engage in a fully immersive pedagogy, i.e. really only using the target language and, mm -hmm. and encouraging the students to do the same, or whether the teacher was strategically 
involving the first language or language, other languages that the students knew in his or her pedagogy. And um, in the case of English as a second language, the teacher is not the one who's using these other languages sure. because they don't sure. know the yep. other languages. It's the students. Mm -hmm. But the teacher is giving the students the power to um, be agents in that choice. Um, and in the foreign language, uh, you know, the teacher is really part mm -hmm. of this enterprise. And so we measured to what extent the teacher was using each of the languages in the classroom. And all the learning outcomes, the graphs, as you saw in the talk, um, there's either no statistical difference between these two pedagogies in terms of learning outcomes, or there's a slight advantage for hmm. the non-immersive mm -hmm. pedagogy, mm -hmm. which is really quite surprising. If you yeah. consider all the differences here, foreign language, second language, across three different languages, across different teachers, across different proficiencies. Um, it, that was the most surprising thing to me. When you do treatment control, control educational research, um, it's always risky because there are so many extraneous variables that yeah. could be contributing to yep. your results. But when you've studied 12 language classrooms and sure. they all kind of point to the same thing, then I think that's quite powerful. Yeah. In the ESL classrooms, were they mostly immersive? So was English used almost 100% of the time as opposed to the French and the Arabic classrooms? where maybe English also crept in? Um, so traditionally, in the context in which we worked, yes, English was mandated mm -hmm. in those programs. Mm -hmm. It was present on the syllabus. Mm -hmm. um, at some points, there had been penalties for non-English use mm -hmm. in those English as a second language classrooms. Um, and then when we initiated this classroom research, um, for that non-immersive um, treatment group, for those non-immersive treatment groups, uh, we basically removed those restrictions. Okay. So what we didn't, couldn't, what we weren't able to do in those classrooms is record all of the mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, classes. These were intact classes going mm -hmm. on for credit at the universities. So um, we weren't recording the students that would have been um, to that would have been impossible from an IRB perspective. Mm -hmm. um, so we can't actually quantify how much sure. non-English was being used, and we're relying on student self-reporting mm -hmm. and teacher observations okay. for the data from the English language classrooms. And according to that, yes, there was quite a bit. According to what the teachers were observing, the teachers were journaling after every single class. Oh well. For four months. Wow. That's a lot of journaling. <laughs> no kidding. Yes. Yeah, that's a lot of journaling. So uh, those journals proved to be really important to demonstrate fidelity to condition. Sure. To show that, yes, the teacher in their pedagogy is trying to implement a non-immersive pedagogy for the treatment condition, or we can call mm -hmm. this a multilingual pedagogy, or maybe even a translanguaging uh, trans or translingual pedagogy. Um. For the French and Arabic classrooms, uh, those all those classes were recorded, so we have a much more detailed mm -hmm, record mm -hmm. of the languages that were being that were were being used by the teachers and the students. So um, the data slightly mixed across condition uh, across the different classroom contexts, but in general, we can say that um, there were 
in the treatment conditions that we were implementing and non-immersive pedagogy mm -hmm. and in the control conditions and immersive pedagogy. Got it. Very interesting. So Amanda, you just mentioned multilingualism and translingualism. What's the difference between those two terms? Oh. <laughs> so this is a quite a loaded question and I have run into some difficulties okay. to be honest in publishing these data mm. and the terms that I'm using okay. because some of the terms can be quite loaded so mm. there is you know we've had the terms code switching and code mixing yep. um, people writing on similar issues to what I'm what we're investigating mm -hmm. have used code switching as a way to describe okay. the types of treatments mm -hmm. that that uh, we're initiating in our in our classrooms. Translanguaging is a more recent movement that is pedagogically oriented, but I've been to a number of large um, conferences and conventions in recent years, and translanguaging, there are clear definitions of what translanguaging is, and the definition I use is uh, recruiting one's full linguistic repertoire for to achieve one's communicative goals, mm -hmm. um, especially in the education of emergent uh, bilinguals. And this is a definition that I obtained from Ophelia Garcia, who's very close to us in New York State, so mm -hmm. that's very helpful. But in publishing these data, I have come across reviewers who may object mm, to okay. sure. my use of some of these terms in the context that I'm using them. So it's really hard to try to find mm -hmm. um, less loaded terms <laughs> to describe <laughs> yes, the studies yes. that I've done. Yeah. And so for the moment, I'm going with immersive and non-immersive okay. or monolingual and multilingual mm -hmm. approaches. Okay. And when I say monolingual there, I mean using only the target language in the language mm -hmm. classroom. Mm -hmm. um, and so these seem to be the least loaded terms. Mm -hmm. But interestingly, they're often misunderstood. So when I say monolingual... People don't think L2, second language, monolingual. Mm, they think sure, sure, kind sure, of first sure. language, monolingual. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. I have to be careful there too yeah, and kind of reiterate what I mean by mm -hmm. monolingual. Yeah. Um, so terminology has proven a oh. little mm -hmm. complex. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So what we hear, um, especially for the K-12 context and, yes. and ACTful, there is a push toward target language only, right? That we should use at least 90%, if not more, of the target language in our instruction. Is that something that you are a proponent of as well? When we're talking about immersive versus non-immersive um, classroom teaching, mm -hmm. should we strive mm -hmm. for complete immersion? There's a really interesting difference between... Um, foreign language learning and English as a second language learning mm -hmm. and approaches to pedagogy in this arena. So English as a second language learning, particularly here in New York State, is really taking a bilingual approach mm -hmm. and a translanguaging mm -hmm. approach, mm -hmm. and that's really being promoted for content-based learning. Yeah. Yeah. For foreign language learning, yes, there is still this notion that um, full immersion is best and as close to 100% as mm -hmm. best. And, of course, there are studies, you know, stretching back decades um, that have shown that insufficient input and uh, opportunities for production are going to hinder, um, is going to hinder a second language mm -hmm. development. Mm -hmm. But 
the, I think the key question here is how much input is sufficient, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And I don't yep. think this 90% rule, mm-hmm. I'm not sure we have empirical evidence to support mm-hmm. that. And that's one of the things I'm trying to get at with mm-hmm. the French and Arabic studies. So because those were lab studies, we can quantify mm-hmm. how much yeah. target yeah, language yeah, yeah. was used by yeah. the teacher and the students. So one of the slides I showed in my talk showed that in one particular lesson, um, I don't recall the exact percentage, but it was something like the teacher used only 23% of Arabic Mm -hmm. in that lesson. And how did the students perform on that quiz? Well, they performed better than the students who received Hmm. um, Mm -hmm. closer to 100% of Arabic (laughs) in that class. So... um, you know, part of what part of the question this research is trying to answer is how much input is sufficient and optimal yeah, yeah. for language acquisition. And there won't be a magic number, oh, of course. Right? Yeah. It's mm-hmm. going to depend on um, individual differences between you know among mm-hmm. the learners, but mm-hmm. also with the teacher, proficiency level, yep. languages. Um, so what I'm trying to do is take a first step here. And open the doors for more research. Mm -hmm. I have had supervisors call me to ask me what the optimal target Mm -hmm. language usage is for instructors. Because they're using that as a metric to evaluate their instructors. And I feel really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And and I can't provide a number because we don't know the number. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? So I feel really uncomfortable about that. And teachers, I've seen a lot of trauma Mm -hmm. in teachers Mm -hmm. around this issue. Um, which is another area that I'd like to take my my research mm-hmm. into, looking at the trauma that that teachers are experiencing, and that's already been reported in the literature. Where, um, you know, the negative professional consequences for teachers, the underreporting they do, mm. um, huh. about their use of non-target language mm-hmm. in the language classroom. Uh, I certainly heard that from my own students. Um, so this, what this data is trying to show is, even if the teacher only used 23% of Arabic in one lesson. Actually, the learners did very well in their quizzes mm-hmm, that day. Mm-hmm. So this is not the end of this research sure. program. We have so much more research to do. But I, I'm hoping to suggest to the decision makers that it's okay to do this research. We're not mm-hmm, hurting our mm-hmm, learners. The mm-hmm. learners are still um, meeting the goals of that lesson. Yeah. However, they are measured. And um, let's, you know, let's continue to to work on this because there's not going to be a magic number. Sure. So let's figure yep. out, you know, what are the factors that impact um, sufficient and optimal levels of, of second language mm-hmm. input? And let's all work yep. towards that understanding. Yep. I also think that there is a difference between input and input, right? I mean, not all input is created equal. Yes. So only because we have 90% of target language use yes. in the classroom, it doesn't mean that that's the input that our students actually yes. need to advance in their proficiency. So that complicates matters too. You are absolutely right. Absolutely right. And so the next stage of this research is more descriptive. Mm-hmm. Um, we do have quite a bit of descriptive research already in mm. looking at what teachers use each of the languages for, what they use the target language for and what they use the first language for in the language classroom. And that's very valuable. But what we don't have is the relationship between what they're doing with the languages and mm-hmm. what effect that has mm-hmm. on learning. We don't yeah. have that key link. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's clearly the next step that yeah. we need to take. So what kind of input 
in the second language is necessary and what kind of input in the mm-hmm. first language can facilitate mm-hmm. the process. Yeah. So we know, you know, we know that teachers use the first language for all kinds of functions. Mm-hmm. Does it help? Yeah. And in my own studies, I did leave this up to the teacher. So I I um, relied on the teacher's professional judgment mm-hmm. to use the non-target language, so the first language generally, um, when they felt it was appropriate, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and give and and then by extension, them giving their learners the agency to make those mm-hmm. choices too. Mm-hmm. Um, so as a researcher, I really didn't try to control that, but we can describe yeah. the kinds of decisions those um, practitioners made. Mm-hmm. Well, and I'm I'm really glad that you're doing experimental studies. I remember many, many, many years ago in grad school, I did a project on teacher talk and the perception of teachers, how much target language they use versus English. And that was so interesting because everybody was basically telling me that the more experienced the teachers were, the more they were like, oh, yeah, I'm totally only using the target language. Yeah. And that was not the case. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah. So that is really interesting. Um, that is another area I'd like to go in, but actually the the opposite of that. So what I've encountered, and I I can absolutely imagine that your experienced teachers who yeah. feel safe in their jobs yeah. and very comfortable and probably very effective teachers, yeah. um, I can imagine that that this could have been their um, assumption. But what I've also seen, I have had teachers come and ask me privately mm-hmm. if I will come and observe their classes mm-hmm. and tell them how much target language they, mm. they use. Interesting, and yeah. Anecdotally thus far, and I would like to do a study on this, anecdotally thus far, they are underestimating hmm. how much target language they're using. So I had one teacher tell me that they thought they were using um, about 50% target language. Mm-hmm. Turned out it was about 99. Oh, okay, wow, you, can yeah. measure, you can measure target language oh, sure. in a variety yeah. of ways. Yeah. You know, how many minutes mm-hmm. the teacher is talking, how many yeah. words they're yeah. using. Um, but roughly speaking... Mm-hmm. Around 99.9% target language usage. And so they were so crazy. off <laughs> yeah. on their own, um, on their percept- self-perceptions, uh-huh. so off. So I think putting your story and my story together could make a really interesting story yeah. Yeah. about how teachers are not always aware mm-hmm. about uh, no. their own language usage. Yeah. And sometimes this can be a source of anxiety for them. Mm-hmm. So this teacher was really pleased to hear. Oh, that I bet. They were, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not that way. <laughs> <laughs> and then I believe went and told their supervisor and then much, much happier in their job. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah. Great. So what are some of the implications for both researchers and practitioners in regard to immersive versus non-immersive teaching and learning? What's What's your suggestion? Is there one thing that you can definitively say that teachers should or should not do? Yeah, that is a huge question. And I <laughs> I don't I I don't bear this responsibility lightly. I don't want to kind of cop out and not make any recommendations mm-hmm. for a practice, but I want to be very, very cautious at this point because there is so much work to be done. Sure. Uh, you know, you've mentioned one excellent area for for expansion here and you know the idea that not all input is created equally so what kinds of input are effective what i would like to say to teachers and their employers Mm -hmm. is that effective teachers can make effective judgments around language usage in the classroom Mm -hmm. and 
just because they may not be using the target language close to 100% of the time does not mean the learners aren't getting an effective learning experience. Mm -hmm. I also want to tell learners that and their parents Mm -hmm. (laughs) and anybody else who will listen. Once this is less of a hot button issue, Mm -hmm. it opens the way for more research. Yeah. So this is the research implication. There's so much more work Mm -hmm. to be done. But I do have to say, this research was not popular research. Mm. I There's a reason I conducted some of my research in lab settings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it's not popular research. It's hard to do. I am protected by mm-hmm. the wonderful academic freedom to yep. pursue even unpopular research mm-hmm. that has to be done. And uh, so what I'm trying to do here is break down some of the barriers yeah. and the myths mm. But myths that carry huge professional consequences for teachers, you know. And teachers have told me their stories. Mm. Um, And it's it's heartbreaking. And the the trauma that they have around this and the guilt that they feel. And this has been reported in the literature too. Mm. So the data, really the data is trying to reassure all these stakeholders in the learning process. Our goal is common. We're trying to make second language acquisition, second language learning and teaching, the most effective it can be. Yeah. My perspective in this study is cutting off the first language doesn't help. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it might hurt mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah. Um, so let's remove that worry and pursue more research in this area that really gives us a broader Um, understanding of all the factors around target language usage in the language classroom Mm -hmm. that can um, impact optimal learning outcomes. What would you like to tell language teachers about immersive teaching? That is a great question um, because clearly that's the maybe biggest implication from the research. So first, Teaching in the target language only is a highly sought-after professional characteristic. Mm -hmm. So employers will recognize that. Students will recognize that. Students will remember teachers who did that. So for teachers and, for example, my students, for teachers in training, um, I I do tell them it is important to make sure they are able to do that if Mm -hmm. asked because employers may ask them. So once they are able to do that, then they may be able to start taking those professional judgment decisions based um, around the language that they're using in the classroom. Um, So the first step is make sure you can teach in an immersive way and then start making um, decisions around effective language use. Hmm. And watch this space. Let's see if more research is done in this area. Let's see what employers, how employers respond to the type of research that we're publishing, how students respond, how teachers respond, um, what additional research we can do in this area. I guess just just keep watching this space. Mm-hmm. Great. So where are some venues where we can read up more on this exciting and very important <laughs> work that you are engaged in? Are, are some of your... Research findings already available for public consumption? Yes, yes. So so one of the English as a second language studies is um, already out in okay. TESOL quarterly this year. Wonderful. Another one is under review okay. um, in English. And the French and Arabic is, is in preparation okay. right now, hopefully to be submitted this year. 
Um, it is interesting that the, the work on ideological work on um, multilingual approaches to second language ed- or foreign language education have has been around for a while, um, but there's been a massive growth in the last couple of years of the number of re- researchers doing work mm-hmm. on how teachers are using the first language in yeah. the second language classroom. Um, and that's fantastic. Yeah. It's fantastic. So there's lots of work emerging mm-hmm. um, over the last couple of years. That's great. A lot of it is still descriptive, though. Mm. So maybe looking at how often teachers are doing this and for sure. what purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're still missing that link to outcomes. So mm. um, I'm still hoping that we can have... And I I understand this kind of experimental work is... It is hard to do. Yeah. For lots of reasons, it's hard to do. Um, but I'm hoping that more of these types of studies will mm-hmm. will emerge. Yeah, that's great. Wonderful. Well, before we sign off, can you please share with us your oh. favorite word in a language that you speak, that you have learned, are learning, want okay. to learn? What is that favorite word of yours? Oh, this is such a wonderful question. Uh, and quite easy, actually. That So there's <laughs> a word in Japanese. That it's a verb. And the verb is gambaru. And it basically means, so I, I had to look it up on Google Translate at some point <laughs> because I also use it in my classes here. Hmm. So I had an intuitive understanding of what this word meant, but I'd never actually officially checked it on yeah. any, in any translation <laughs> tool. So I did look it up at some point and it was translated as to do one's best. Hmm. But to me, this doesn't capture the essence mm. of this word. So you can use it for yourself to describe your own actions, but you can also use it in imperative form to encourage others. Oh, nice. And that's how I've experienced this word. So this word is is often said with such passion mm-hmm. and vigor mm-hmm. that to, in my mental lexicon, this word means fight mm. and not mm-hmm. sort of physical fighting, but just perseverance. Yeah. And keep fighting and keep going and, yeah, do your best. But but more than that, do your best with passion, with vigor. Um, and I just love this word. Maybe I associate it with my experiences living in Japan. But I do, <laughs> <laughs> on multiple occasions, say that to my non-Japanese-speaking students uh-huh. and then explain to them what I mean um, by that. And uh, and I think they get the, the sense. Mm-hmm. So it's a great word. Gambate. I like it. Wonderful. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for speaking of language with us today, Amanda. Oh, you're so welcome. It was a pleasure. Next week, we are getting ready for Thanksgiving with a special episode on gratitude. Hear from Cornell students, faculty, and staff about what they are thankful for. Until then, auf Wiederhören. The Language Resource Center is located on the ground floor of Stimson Hall on Cornell's main campus in Ithaca, New York. Check us out on the web at lrc.cornell.edu or look for Cornell LRC on Facebook and Twitter. Speaking of Language is produced by Angelica Kramer and Sam Lupowitz. Recorded by Sam Lupowitz. Original music by Sam Lupowitz, Dan Gable, and Joe Gibson. Thanks also to the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell University. As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Sciences or any other official entity of Cornell University. We thank our listeners, and do stay tuned for our next episode.